you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Nobility has always had more than its share of legends and mysteries associated with it. Some of the stories are those of ghosts reputed to haunt old manor houses and castles, and legends of banshees, deals with the devil, and other supernatural happenings. Tales of curses abound, and then there's the traditions at some homes of keeping so-called screaming skulls in the house for fear of supernatural vengeance should they be removed. Then there are the more prosaic and commonplace mysteries, mysterious murders, and questions of survival. Some noble disappeared under mysterious circumstances, and there's questions of whether they're still around, or if they're dead, and what exactly this means for succession of the title. There's a certain hopeful element in imagining a favorite noble of the people is still alive somewhere. In legendary, the lost noble children can still be alive, brought up in secret like Caspar Hauser, or in a stroke of poetic irony, the king can be forced to live out the rest of his life as a nameless peasant. And sometimes, they could be found. This is episode 88, The Tichborn Claimant. Arthur Matchen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The Tichborns were an old noble family of England, and for a time anyway, Ireland. An old bloodline tracing their roots to before William the Conqueror even made landfall in England, an ancestor named Sir Benjamin Tichborn had been given land by King James I in 1621 and became the first baronet Tichborn. This despite the fact that one of his cousins, Chidlock, had been executed in 1586 for plotting to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I. Benjamin built a manor house in the town of Aldershot in Hampshire, which was abandoned in 1670 when his grandson, Sir Henry Tichborn, oversaw construction of another manor, which was to serve as the family's home until the dissolution of the baronetcy in 1968. The house built by Sir Henry became known as Tichborn Park, and stands in Manor Park in Aldershot to this day. As befits almost any old family line like this, there's a somewhat supernatural tale associated with the clan. Sometime around 1150, Lady Maybella Tichborn decreed on her deathbed that every year, on the Feast of Annunciation, March 25th, every adult inhabitant of the villages of Tichborn and Sheraton could receive a gallon of flour and every child half a gallon. This became known as the Tichborn Dole. It is said that she proclaimed that if the dole were to ever cease, the Tichborns would have seven sons, 
and then seven daughters, and the line would cease. It was, in fact, stopped in 1796 by Sir Henry Tichborne, the eighth baronet. True to the curse's stipulations, Sir Henry had seven daughters and no sons. The succession was moved around among family members, but every son started dying. The dole was resumed. Henry's brother became the ninth baronet, and on his death the title was bestowed upon Henry's son, Sir James Francis Tichborne, in 1853. It is with Sir James that today's story really begins. Both James and his father served in the Napoleonic Wars, and were captured by the French at Verdun. After his return to England, James Tichborne married a girl almost 20 years his junior, Henriette Felicité Seymour, daughter of an English father and a French mother. The marriage was not a happy one, however, and after two sons, Roger and Alfred, had been born, Henriette moved to Paris, seeing her husband only rarely. It is with the elder of the two, Roger Charles Doty Tichborne, we are here concerned. He had been born in 1829 and was raised in an unorthodox manner by his mother. A brown-haired, blue-eyed child, he was essentially raised as a girl until he was 12, and his mother was preoccupied with the notion that her son was almost constantly ill. By 1845, the 16-year-old Roger, who almost exclusively spoke French, was brought back to England by his father, who wanted his son to live as a quote-unquote proper gentleman, an heir to the title of baronet. He began attending a Catholic school, Stonyhurst College, near Clitheroe in Lancashire. When his furious mother sent people to England to retrieve her son, who had been basically kidnapped while he was attending his grandfather's funeral, he replied that he'd rather stay, and the matter was dropped. He joined the army after school, and was stationed in Ireland from 1849 until 1852. He began courting his first cousin, Catherine Doty, daughter of his uncle Edward, baronet at this time. Edward's wife, however, wasn't fond of the idea of Roger, who smoked and drank to excess, marrying her daughter, and told him so. He rejoined his military unit, but their latest posting was in England, and Roger wanted to go overseas. So he left again, and in March 1853, he boarded a ship called the La Pauline, which was sailing for Valparaiso, Chile. Over the next year, he traveled around South America, stopping in Santiago, Buenos Aires, and finally Rio de Janeiro. In Rio, on April 20th, he boarded another ship, the Bella, which was bound for Jamaica. A few days after it had set sail, a capsized lifeboat bearing the nameplate of the Bella was found in the waters off Brazil. Some wreckage was also found nearby, though perhaps significantly, no crew was ever found. It was rumored by some that the crew had been picked up by another boat and taken to Australia, but the fate of the Bella's crew is unknown to this day. Nothing was heard for years. In 1862, James Tichborne died. By all rights, Roger should have become the 11th baronet. But as he hadn't been heard of for nearly a decade and was generally presumed dead, the title passed instead to Roger's younger brother, Alfred. If James had made peace with the likelihood that his son was deceased, Henriette had not. She had by this time moved back to England. She was almost obstinate in her refusal to accept her son's death. 
1863, she was routinely consulting clairvoyants and putting advertisements in newspapers for news of her son's fate. As he was believed to have been taken to Australia, advertisements were also placed in Australian newspapers. Although Lady Tichborne's advertisements promised, quote, a handsome reward, the fact was that the estates were nearing bankruptcy. Alfred was proving to be quite a disappointment as a baronet. He drank entirely too much and spent money like it was water, quickly exhausting the family's resources. Their estate at Tichborne Park had to be divided into apartments and rented out. Alfred ended up drinking himself to death in 1866, having held the title of baronet for only four years. But it was in October of 1865 that Lady Tichborne received news. Arthur Cubitt, the newspaperman who had placed the advertisement in the Australian newspapers, informed his employer that William Gibbs, an attorney from Wagga Wagga, had written to him telling of his suspicions that a local butcher by the name of Thomas Castro was, in fact, none other than the long-lost Roger Tichborne. Gibbs met Castro when the butcher filed for bankruptcy, and the butcher one day asked him whether he should list, quote, a property in England among his assets, meaning, of course, Tichborne Park. He also said that he had survived a shipwreck at one point in the past, and smoked a pipe marked with the initials RCT. Castro admitted to Gibbs that he was in actuality Roger Tichborne, and though he initially was reticent about allowing him to publicize the fact, it was only a short time until he allowed the attorney to contact Henriette Tichborne back in England. This came only shortly after the death of Alfred. Eager to accept that her missing son was still alive, Lady Tichborne became one of Castro's most ardent supporters. Although Castro had written to Lady Tichborne asking for money, none was forthcoming for a time, in which time he had made his way to Sydney, where he met an ex-servant of the Tichborns. Andrew Bogle, a West Indian, recognized Castro was emboldened by the recognition and began making arrangements to go back to England. Castro, who I'll refer to from here on as the claimant, revisited and toured the family's Hampshire properties. In doing so, he was recognized by several people, although physically a far larger man than was Roger Tichborne. These included the current tenant at Tichborne Park, a Colonel Lushington, as well as a solicitor and a doctor. The claimant seemed to know several pieces of information which bolstered his claim to the estates, including the layout of the house and lands, stories of previous events, and it was noted that he both engaged in fly fishing, an activity Roger Tichborne had been known to enjoy, as well as use the exact same type of flies as Roger preferred. But not everyone was convinced of the claimant's identity. His uncle, Henry Seymour, remained unconvinced. He went to visit the claimant at a house he had purchased in Croydon, during which time he failed to recognize one of the old Tichborne butlers, as well as to understand a word of French. Of course, Roger Tichborne had spoken only French for several years and surely should have understood the language. When the claimant, who the newspapers almost invariably referred to as Roger Tichborne, came to Poole and Dorset, for which his uncle was MP, Seymour went to the mayor of the town and said, There is in this town, sir, a man representing himself to be a baronet, the heir of an ancient family and of large estates held by relatives of my own whom I know to be an impostor and a cheat, 
and who is infamously representing an unfortunate relative of mine who perished miserably years ago. Another not convinced was the Tichborne family solicitor, a man named Mr. Balker. He had been well acquainted with Roger Tichborne, and upon meeting with the claimant, quote, found the newcomer to be an enormously fat man, and no way resembling the late Mr. Tichborne, either in voice, feature, or manner, and entirely ignorant of family circumstances with which one should have supposed the real Sir Roger to have been familiar. On another occasion, Roger's cousin Catherine Doty, who he had been involved with previous to his disappearance, met the claimant and felt he looked somewhat similar to Roger, but eventually decided against his identity after he failed to recognize several relations of his that he probably should have. In June of 1867, the first legal cases were filed. In Tichborne v. Mostyn, the claimant attempted to force the steward of Tichborne Park, Sir Thomas Pyers Mostyn, to vacate the premises. Mostyn was maintaining the house for the 12th baronet, Henry Tichborne, who at this time was only a child. The second challenge, Tichborne v. Tichborne, was an attempt to block payments to Alfred Tichborne's widow in the order of £1,000 per year. Both these cases went nowhere, however, but through prosecution of them, facts were determined about the claimant's identity. The claimant had said that after the wreck of the Bella, he and a few other sailors drifted for some time before being picked up by another ship called the Osprey. The Osprey took the survivors to Melbourne, Australia. Several of the others went to work in some of the Australian goldfields, while he went to work at a stockyard in Melbourne before he moved to Wagga Wagga and began work as a butcher. The Tichborns hired a solicitor named John Mackenzie to go to Australia and investigate the claimant's story. Mackenzie went to the stockyard in Melbourne where he claimed to have worked, and upon investigation found that they had records of neither a Roger Tichborn nor of a Thomas Castro. However, when shown a photograph of the claimant, it was recognized as an Arthur Orton. And in Wagga Wagga, more evidence was found that Thomas Castro and Arthur Orton were the same person. From there, it was a matter of determining who, exactly, Arthur Orton was. Once, he had remarked in Wagga Wagga that he learned the butcher's trade at Newgate Market in London. So while he was in Australia, Mackenzie asked private investigator John Witcher who had previously been involved in an investigation into the murder of a three-year-old Francis Savile Kent in 1860 to carry on investigations in London. Witcher found that Arthur Orton was the son of a butcher, George Orton, from Wapping, London. He became a cabin boy on board the ship Ocean, sailing for South America. He also discovered letters from a Thomas Castro, asking for information on the remaining London Ortons. When asked in the earlier court proceedings about his use of the name Thomas Castro, the claimant had replied that it was the name of a man he had met in Melapia, Chile. Further investigations in South America revealed that there was, indeed, a man in Melapia named, named Tomas Castro. He didn't know a Roger Tichborne, but confirmed that there was a boy he knew as Arturo, who had deserted the ship on which he was serving and had lived in town for about a year. Back in London, Witcher found that by 1852, Orton was back in the city, leaving, leaving again on the ship Middleton, bound for Hobart, Van Diemen's Land, or now Tasmania. Once there, 
The hard-drinking Orton swiftly got himself into trouble for mostly minor offenses. In 1855, he was charged with obtaining money under false pretenses. Later that year, he moved to Gypsland, and there his activities become obscure. There are vague allusions he may have been involved with horse thievery. He eventually settled in Wagga Wagga in 1864 under the name of Thomas Castro. The implication is that he may have changed his name to avoid warrants out for his arrest. Then in March of 1868, Lady Tichborne died, depriving the claimant of the sole member of the Tichborne family, save for a distantly removed cousin, who accepted his identity as Roger Tichborne. By 1870, a combination of legal costs, a lack of any real support from the family, and his voracious drinking and smoking had nearly bankrupted him. The claimant's supporters set up a fund to provide him with an income of £1,400 per year, but even this was not enough, and he was rendered penniless. The claimant's legal team came up with a scheme to issue what were called Tichborne bonds. These would be purchased for £20, with the promise that the buyer would receive £100 back from the claimant upon receiving his rightful inheritance. By this scheme, the the claimant received a sum of £40,000. It was now 1871, and the deciding legal case was soon to begin. Tichborne v. Lushington was a civil case filed by the claimant to finally eject the current tenant of Tichborne Park, Colonel Lushington. Doing so would, by necessity, require a final decision as to the claimant's true identity. The case was heard at Westminster Palace. Presiding over the case's judge was Sir William Bovell. William Ballantyne and Harding Gifford represented the claimant, with John Duke Coleridge, grandnephew of poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Solicitor General, and Henry Hawkins represented the Tichborne family's interests. Witnesses brought forward included several members of Roger Tichborne's former army regiment who recognized him. A Major Haywood questioned the claimant as to a practical joke played on Roger while in the barracks. When the claimant correctly recalled details of this joke, he was convinced. Also convinced was John Moore, who had initially accompanied Roger Tichborne to Valparaiso in 1853. There was also much testimony about pieces of information the claimant recalled, pieces that had convinced people he was who he said he was. When the time came for the claimant himself to be questioned, Henry Hawkins questioned him at great length concerning Roger's time at Stonyhurst. These questions displayed vividly the claimant's lack of education and went far to establish much doubt as to his identity. For example, the claimant was ignorant of who Virgil was, denied that Euclid had anything to do with mathematics or geometry, thought Caesar was Greek, couldn't speak Hebrew, Latin, Greek, or any other language with which he should have been familiar, and so on. Later, he maintained that he was not Arthur Orton, but had met him in Australia, and that the letters he had written the Orton family, discovered by John Witcher, were only to let them know that Arthur was alive and well. Never mind that the claimant's daughter was to later say that her father had actually confessed to the murder of Arthur Orton, but more on the daughter later. The case then adjourned and did not resume for four months. Despite the fact that the claimant was displaying on the stand that he was not Roger Tichborne, the sympathies of the public, probably cowered by class warfare as much as anything, still supported his cause. 
When the case resumed, William Valentine called up the Tichborn's former servant Andrew Bogle, as well as Francis Bajan, two of the claimant's earliest supporters. While John Duke Coleridge had a sizable number of witnesses to call forward to further dispel the notion of the claimant's nobility, only a few were required. The first was Edward Bellew, an Irish nobleman who had known Roger Tichborne at Stonyhurst. He said that Roger had a tattoo on his arm. The claimant did not have one. The court was satisfied that the overwhelmingly negative testimony, as well as the slam-dunk testimony of the missing tattoo, ruled out the claimant's identity. They stopped short of proclaiming him to be Arthur Orton, rather that he was not Roger Tichborne. The arrest of the claimant was ordered, and he was held in Newgate Prison for perjury. He was bailed out by supporters after only two months. There was one more trial yet to come. Regina versus Castro was heard before the Queen's bench before the Lord Chief Justice, Sir Alexander Cockburn, as well as Sir John Malore and Sir Robert Lush. Henry Hawkins once more represented the prosecution. William Ballantyne hadn't been paid his fee for the first trial, and so declined to represent the claimant again. Eventually, the services of Edward Vaughan Keneally QC were procured. Keneally was an Irish lawyer, but it's unclear whether or not he actually had a law degree, as no documentation of this can be found at Trinity College, Dublin. He was part of the defense team for poisoner William Palmer. Keneally was also rather eccentric, and penned several books, in which he maintained the book of Revelation had been written by Adam, not John, and wrote extensively on Atlantis and the book of Enoch. His defense was a long tirade in which he cast James Tichborne, Roger's father, as a drunken wife-beater, Roger Tichborne as an idiot, launched into vehement attacks on the school at Stonyhurst. This is unsurprising, given Keneally had a well-known prejudice against Catholics, and that the claimant's inability to remember certain facts and information was because Roger Tichborne had been so traumatized that he legitimately couldn't recall huge swaths of his life. Then the witnesses were called. Some reappeared from the previous trial. Some were new. Among the new ones was a sea captain named James Brown, who testified that he had helped a drunk Roger Tichborne onto the Bella. A check of Brown's service record revealed that in 1854, he hadn't even been in Brazil. He was convicted of perjury and sentenced to prison for three years. Another was a man named Jean-Louis, a crewman on board the Osprey who plucked Roger from a lifeboat. Louis, too, proved to be a Swedish career criminal named Lundgren. He, too, was convicted of perjury. In the end, Hawkins had an easy job. Keneally's defense was doing nothing to help the claimant's case. One notable thing that came out, however, was what was established about the Osprey. The prosecution established that a ship of that name had docked at Melbourne in July 1854, but it hadn't at all corresponded to the claimant's description. Names of a few crew members had been given, and all of those turned out to be crew members on the Middleton, the ship which ferried Arthur Orton to Tasmania. Hawkins concluded the entire story was a fabrication. After still more anti-Catholic rants from Keneally, the case closed on January 29, 1874. Lord Cockburn strongly rebuked Keneally, and after deliberating for only 30 minutes, 
The jury declared once more that the claimant was not Roger Tichborne and that he was actually Arthur Orton. He was once more convicted of perjury and sentenced to prison for 10 years. On December 2, 1874, as a result of his conduct during the trial, Edward Keneally was disbarred. But the annex during this trial only deepened public sympathies with the claimant, or I suppose I should now say Orton, and Edward Keneally besides. Keneally actually won a parliamentary seat in 1875, using this position to attempt to prompt a re-examination of the case. He died in 1880 after losing a second term. Arthur Orton left prison in 1884, toured music halls, eventually went to New York for a time, and in 1887 he remarried, though he was still married to his first wife. He confessed to being Arthur Orton in 1895, but once paid by the newspaper, retracted the confession. He died in 1898. A plaque was affixed to his coffin, proclaiming him to be Roger Tichborne. In 1876, a resident of the Parramatta Lunatic Asylum in Australia, William Cresswell, declared that he was actually Arthur Orton. He never claimed to be Roger Tichborne. A William Cresswell had been mentioned in press reports as far back as 1871, as someone with whom Arthur Orton had dealings in Australia. Arthur's daughter Agnes Orton, later known as Teresa Mary Doty Tichborne, as mentioned earlier, claimed that her father had confessed in 1885 that he, as Roger Tichborne, had actually murdered Arthur Orton. In 1913, she threatened to murder the fiancé of the 13th baronet, Joseph Tichborne, to prompt the family to pay the monies rightfully due to her father. She referred to Joseph as her cousin. She was charged with blackmail, and it was revealed she had been harassing the Tichborns for years trying to get money. She was jailed for six months. In 1924, she was again threatening Joseph Tichborne, and was again charged and imprisoned. Most researchers nowadays accept the court's ruling that the claimant was, indeed, Arthur Orton. There remain questions, however, and several theories that are meant to explain why, if he were such a blatant imposter, why then were so many people apparently fooled. A few witnesses testified that Roger Tichborne had been seen in Ballarat, Australia, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that somehow he had made it there. Oftentimes, there's a theory that he was sent to prison for some offense, and it was there that he met Arthur Orton, who seems to have been in jail quite frequently. At least some information was passed between the two, and after something happened to Roger, whether he died or whatever, Orton decided to take up his identity. Another popular idea was that Arthur Orton was actually an illegitimate son of James Tichborne, and thus Roger's half-brother. One other theory circulates around Andrew Bogle, the Jamaican-born former servant of the Tichborns Arthur met in Australia, who was one of the first to recognize him as Roger Tichborne. The idea here is that Bogle bore a grudge against his former employers, not receiving the severance pay he had expected. Perhaps, some theorize, he conspired with Orton to try to get back at the family who had, in his mind, screwed him over. And then, of course, there are those that still believe, despite the court ruling in all appearances, that the claimant was actually Roger Tichborne. The whole matter, in my opinion, might constitute a solved-unsolved case. 
mostly solved. I agree that the claimant was Orton, but there might very well be more to the story. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. I'm taking a break for a few weeks, long enough to get a few episodes written up anyway. Think of it as the space between seasons on other podcasts. I'll be back though, never fear. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.